0: Hello everyone, and thank you so much for downloading this episode of BeesPod. On today's show, Mem and I were delighted to be joined by Mr Tony Kleantis, Barnet's chairman, for part one of a very wide and open conversation about the nature of Barnet Football Club at the moment. We spent a lot of time discussing some of the early years, the Paul Fairclough reign, the move to the Hive, how we can perhaps engage supporters in the future, and some of the challenges facing the Bees on and off the pitch. It's a very honest, a very open, a very frank conversation, we really hope you like what you hear. and as ever, let us know what you think at Beastpod or indeed follow and subscribe to the pod to hear more episodes. Thank you and enjoy. Well first of all thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of Beast Pods. Uh, my name is Ian. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined, as usual, by Mem and also by a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Tony Kleantis. Um Mr. Clantis, how are you doing today, first of all?
1: Yeah, very good. Thank you for having me.
0: No, thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm just going to give a very brief introduction. I'm sure most of us um, listening know who you are, but please correct me if any of this is wrong. Uh, this is from Wikipedia, so not the most so- useful source of information, but... Uh, In 1994, I believe, you you bought the club um, and just 28 years old at the time, you became the youngest chairman in the Football League and have overseen the bee's fortunes throughout various promotions and relegations. Um, And I guess most notably in 2013, um, uh, we moved uh, under your ownership to the Hive, which is where we are uh, sitting right now, um, boasting some of the finest footballing facilities outside the Championship um, and indeed some of the best in the country. And that's where we are today uh, right now. And I guess... The first thing is we know a lot about you as a, as a chairman and as your owner of, of Barnet, but we don't know a huge amount about you yourself and how you came to actually buying Barnet Football Club. So if you can cast your mind back, uh, it's quite a while wow. ago now. Some time <laughs> um, ago. Just just tell yeah, us yeah. about yourself, you know, kind of where you grew up and, and how you came to, to kind of being involved with Barnet in the first place. So, okay, so I'm
1: in North London, boy. Uh, Barnet was my local club, but it wasn't really the club I used to watch. I used to watch Arsenal. Um, and then around about, and I was in telecoms, uh, got quite involved in telecoms, um, and came out of that at a young age with a bit of money. Uh, and, and I was kind of thinking what to do next. And, uh, you know, I liked football. I, you know, I always liked football. Um, and, and a friend said to me, oh, Barnett's in trouble. Can you help him? Um... And it's the oddest thing, because at the time I thought, oh, yeah, a football club might be a good idea. And I looked at Leighton Orient, that was before Barry Hearn bought it, uh, and Gillingham, before Paul Scully bought Gillingham. And as propositions, they were both very good, you know, interesting propositions, because they had past histories that suggested they could have a very big fan base yeah. if they did well. Um, anyway, someone mentioned Barnet to me, so... I went and had a look and I was a bit surprised actually uh, at how run down it was. It was really, really, it was bad. It was really (laughs) bad. I mean, grass coming out of terraces, I think one of the stands had just RSJ metal beams and no roof and I think it was a West Bank it used to be called. Um, And it was just, it was in a bad way. But more importantly, the council uh, had restricted them so much. uh, Matches had to be all ticket at the time. The league was going to throw them out. uh, And it was one of those where, you know, you just think, I've got to help them out. i just got to, I can't leave this. Um, David Bookler had taken over as chairman, put him in a CVA. uh, But he couldn't carry on. uh, So I think he'd reached a point uh, where he was going to call it a day. At that time, there was about £400,000 of debt. That was the next... Tranche payment that needed to be made. So I committed to make that for forum to get them out of trouble. And then I started watching them for a while Dougie Friedman uh, and you know, and the team under Ray. And I don't know, kind of something about Barnett it just gets inside you. Yeah. Um, and, and an odd thing happened as well, actually. My wife was shopping in W.H. Smith's, looking along the book section. And uh, she said to me, you know, the oddest thing happened the other day. I was <coughs> in WH Smiths and there was this book that was poking out. And I don't know, something made me just try and push it back in because it, it was just... Anyway, and she went to push it back in and it wouldn't go back in, so she pulled it out and she said, I had to buy you this book. And it was actually the club that wouldn't die. Unbelievably, what is the chances of that? And that, that really happened. And it was at that point that my wife actually got on board <laughs> and said, really, you've got to help that club out. So, so it kind of became a, this has to happen. Of uh, course, within probably seven, eight weeks, uh, the 400 grand wasn't really 400 grand. We found out it was about more like one, 1. 1.7 million in trouble. The CVA that was done, not one payment had been made against it. So that was another, I think, two hundred and eighty-eight thousand, or short of three hundred. Anyway, so so all of a sudden it was a lot more money than anyone thought it would be, uh, and I was faced with a really difficult position then, because uh, you know, if I, I knew then, if just, I just, I didn't have to put any more. I had no commitment beyond what I'd already agreed. Um, if I walked, it would have folded. Uh, so I just thought, you know what? I just, I just, let's just do it. Rolled up my sleeves and got on with it. Uh, and it hasn't been easy. Uh, it's been a very interesting journey. And it's a lot of money. Uh, of course, it's quite. You know, uh, I look back on it now, and I think that David was probably the cleverest guy I'd ever come across, because I think he knew exactly <laughs> what he. Was. I think he sussed out the kind of. I'm quite passionate about stuff. And I think he's—he just uh, knew how to reel me in, uh, and then he jumped ship and went to—he became chairman of Spurs. Yeah. And I thought, well, he's have done that well. <laughs> uh, Contrasting. So, to so yeah, he's running brothers. Spurs, and I'm running Barnet. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: yeah. I mean, just before I hand over to him, I guess Barnet's one of those clubs that it just—you know—everyone think, thinks their football club is special, but I think Barnet fans, in particular, there, there is something that is special about Barnet, and I think just in general when you when you think about barnet and you speak you know you've a lot of other businesses as well but when you are running barnet what what is it that makes the club special in your eyes is it some of the games some of the players is it what is it that makes barnet barnet for I you i think
1: the thing is i think we're everybody's second club yeah and not enough people's first club that's the problem with barnet everyone kind of is fond and loves barnet the media attention we get for the size of club is incredible isn't it um, we have a very educated fan base. You know, you've got a lot of very clever supporters who occupy some real fantastic positions in business and commerce. You know, you, you you'll find Barnet fans. I always say this: you find more Barnet fans up and down in the boardrooms of FTSE One Hundred companies <laughs> than any other club. It's incredible. Um, and and you know, and and you'll get the CEO of I don't know, uh, you know, some major corporation, who who who's company will sponsor 10 boxes at Arsenal and pay millions but what they would do in their spare time is put on their their coat and their their Burberry coat and grab their kids and be on the terrace at Barnet uh and and unfortunately what I've never been able to do is find a way to get them to get their companies (laughs) to to invest in the club in our club in the way they'd invest in a big premiership club yeah but but you know it's it's just different um and And it's so eclectic because because you do have that wide range, that wide spread of support from every end of the spectrum uh, you know it's, it's I think that's what just makes it unique it's yeah. It's a club for everyone yeah.
2: do you, I mean do you think that part of the the issue we have is the fact that being in North London where people generally move away because of house prices and Things like that, do you think that has an impact on sort of the long term, you know, in terms of keeping, keeping the base, you know, coming to games?
1: I think that's a really good point. I think it goes to the heart of what's been our problem. Um, most clubs can identify with an area and have supporters that are in the area and get behind that. What happens with, with us is exactly what you said people do move away, it is expensive. Uh, but more importantly, from a land perspective uh, and a ground perspective, we become a problem. You know, that's what happened at Underhill. You know, the council, were, you know, and a lot of people will tell you a lot of stuff about Underhill, but I know I lived it. Uh, and it's a problem. It's a real difficult problem because, seriously, if you stop and think about it, take off your barnet hat. And, and, and in fairness, I didn't. I actually had a, a Tory councillor. They have to explain it to me. One day when I was like, but why won't you support the club? What the hell's wrong with you? Because to me, it was everything, right? But they said, you know, if you stop and think and say, well, hang on, who, the most expensive road in the borough, Totteridge Lane, right? Who in their right mind wants a stadium at the bottom of Totteridge Lane? It makes no sense whatsoever, and, and when you start to look at it in those terms, and this is the other weird thing, because, of course, I come along as an ambitious chairman and want to do well for the club. And what I'm not appreciating is on a match day, I'm in the club. I don't see what's going on outside. So as our crowds are getting better or we're starting to perform better and, you know, and, and our average starts to hit two and two and a half or 3,000, what I never realised was going out, happening out in the street was was our our supporters would know the back streets and would come from not just the high street but through the back of Totteridge. So you'd you'd have traffic backing along Totteridge Lane and through the high and so we're causing havoc out there. And we think it's great because we're looking around, seeing black and amber and getting excited. But to a council it's a nightmare. We're we're taking up parking spaces, we're we're in people's roads, you know, let's face it, these you know, most of the local residents are very educated people. They know how to write a good letter of complaint when you've got them parked in front of their drive. So so I hadn't ever appreciated just what a pain we were or we were seen to be to the council.
0: And I guess, um, yeah, it, I think in terms of the, the ground and stuff, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment, in terms of the challenges of Underhill, but obviously it was an incredible ground, some great memories there. I just think looking back over there and also here... Are there any particular moments that stand out to you where you felt it was just a truly Barnet experience? I mean, I know a lot of fans have talked about various games or various moments, because it seemed to be a place that just held so many special memories for so many people.
1: Uh, I mean, if you're talking about Underhill itself, uh, I'll never forget that Torquay key game. Yeah. Uh, you know, if a day when everything could go wrong did, it happened that day. It's just, just so... You know, and, and I remember looking at, you know, looking across and seeing people hanging out of trees, trying to watch the game, and I was so upset that some of the people that should have got in
2: didn't get in. Yeah, I didn't get in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but
1: but mem, I've met you now. You deserve, <laughs> <feel> you just, <laughs> you're the one we're trying to keep out. No, but but no, it was it was you know, it's one of those things where it's easy in hindsight. Yeah. Never for a minute did you think all these people are suddenly, you know, we're suddenly going to have you know, eight, nine, ten thousand, other has been various estimates of people who want to turn up to the game. You could say afterwards, well, you should have you should have yeah. known and you should have done this and you should have done that. And I think we one of one of the other things we're very good. We've got a lot of hindsight warriors here who kind of after the event, you know, why did you employ Tony Cotty? Why did you do this? Why but at the time it, we had a great laugh when we when we did the appointment, you know, it was it seemed the right thing at the time. So you know um I think my my one favoured moment though was you know or memory, if you like, that will always live with me was the game against man united uh, and and again, it was a typical barney day, everything went wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we laid on coaches um i <laughs> I'm trying to remember what was called the sports bar or something, but there was somewhere in 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 Manchester a sports cafe. Yeah, yeah. And I remember paying several thousand pounds to lay on. What I did was I laid on this massive buffet. The place held over 2,000 people. And I arranged it so that all the coaches were going to go there. And everyone would have a pre-match and a buffet and before going to the ground. And I was going to meet all the supporters there. So, you know, we all went there and we're waiting and we're hanging around. No coaches. And the prawn sandwiches are starting to get a bit wilted. tiered and everything's <laughs> going a bit wrong. And I think, what the hell's going on? And then we got word of some uh, accident on the motorway or something that held everybody up. So we're waiting and waiting, it's like you've got to get to the ground because because you know you're going to miss the kickoff. So that's all gone wrong, and the coaches have been redirected to go straight to the ground. So we arrive at the ground and 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 sit down, looking out. No supporters in a stand. I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going on here? Um, and then about. I don't know, I can't remember if it was about a minute or two before kick-off, when, when people started. To, yeah. You could literally, where I was sitting, you just saw the, you just see them coming out of the vomitries and it just filling up and filling up. And suddenly, you know, you've got this well of people, game kicks off, Goalkeeper sent <laughs> off. And you think, bloody hell, what the hell's going on I here? Mean, and, and yeah, and, and
0: yeah well, that's right. Well. And then yeah. Scott <laughs> Scott
1: comes on, looks in the days. I think it was Scott Tynan went yeah, on. on. Tyner. Yeah. Yeah, he came on. Look look pretty much in a days. Uh because the first kick went straight past him. I don't think he even moved. And, and and you know, you just think this is surreal. And it was really weird because everyone just started singing. And singing and singing and singing. And, singing and the singing never stopped. And we scored. Yeah. <laughs> God it brings a tear to my eye. No. <laughs> we scored, we scored, and it was unbelievable. And uh no, I'll never forget that day. And you know, at the end, I think they all gave it. They, they gave Barnet FC supporters a standing ovation at Old Trafford. Never mind the players. Yeah. The supporters got a standing ovation, and it was deserved. It was incredible, absolutely incredible. And I think, I don't know,
2: you live for a day like that. Sorry, I get. No. no <laughs> that was amazing. I loved. It. I loved it. I loved it, and I was. I didn't get in the coach, luckily. I drove, my, I drove me and my yeah. friend. Um, so I was, I was in the ground, and I was like, ah, where is everybody? <laughs> like this. And then I'm getting texts from people going, yeah, uh, there's, a, yeah there's a problem on the motorway and uh, as you've exp- as you mm. described and I, re- I remember that game it was amazing I've never cheered a, uh, I've never cheered a consolation goal as much as that <laughs> that, that oh. dancing player goal <laughs> <laughs> so, you know I think Gratz had one disallowed as well didn't he Is
1: that right? outside, no that just, just oh. and I saw Alex after the game uh, sorry Alex Ferguson yeah. and he was really he was actually genuinely annoyed and upset that that sending off had happened because it was wrong and he actually fancied uh, he, he fancied the the He, I think he put a team together that would that would create a bit of a game. He wanted to challenge his players uh, as well. So, oh, what a shame! (laughs) Typical Barney. Just oh my god. So we have a bit of a joke around the club ourselves, around here. That you know, let's face, we all know. Let's face, it's going to go wrong, whatever we do. (laughs) So we just try and do our best and and just you know take the roll with the punches if you like.
0: I I guess uh, the, the that memory of the Old Trafford was, was a time that a lot of supporters obviously look back on fondly. We'd just come up from, from, uh, from lead two under, under Paul Fairclough and, and we're on a good run of form. And I think we'll come back to some of those early years in a moment, but for now, just sort of thinking about that and obviously everything that's changed since then, we've, we've sort of over the intervening sort of 15 years or so find ourselves now at sort of the opposite end, I guess, of the emotional spectrum in terms mm-hmm. of our current performance. And so I guess our first question really is... What the hell's
1: gone wrong? Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> that, that, that is it. Um, <laughs> as a of it. But also, I guess if you had in your, you know, in your power at the Hive a, a sort of a, a stopwatch and a magic clock to go back to a certain point, where would you go back to to sort of try and fix some of the things that we, we have going perhaps wrong today?
1: Um, actually, I had, a poll, I had a conversation with Paul the other day, uh, and, and I'm not sure he recalls... Recalls what I recall. I don't know. Paul Paul's fantastic. You know, if if you get to know Paul, he's 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 a really really good man. And and for me, um, I, I've I've always been. You know, you know, I find it quite sad that that we never managed to continue because I think together we actually worked very well. Um, but I feel Paul, Paul. My recollection was Paul changed the formation when we went up. I think, I'm trying to remember, there was a conversation I remember having where he talked about Chelsea. I think Chelsea had won, yeah, you know, had, yeah, had that, so yeah, 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 Maria. And, and they were playing in a different style with the winger, you know, one forward, Drogba being supported by. And I think he tried to do that with Gratz. And, and I think that, because I actually believe that team would have gone up again. I don't believe he should have changed anything, he should have just continued doing what he was doing because they're amazing i mean they're an incredible bunch as well to be around they really were i mean ian hendon what a great captain i mean I, I, you know i really loved the guy um uh nicky bailey god it's like having a rottweiler having nicky <laughs> dino dino was the was the most energetic puppy i've ever known uh, richard graham wow what a craft Hatch, oh, my God, it's clattering to anyone. It's like like Wreck-It Ralph. (laughs) You know, you just think, But all over the team, there was just such great character, enthusiasm, energy, and Paul did that. Paul kind of galvanised them into this, you know, into this force that were really hard to contain. You just never knew what they were going to do. So I really believe for once in my life, I actually
2: managed to get a team that could have gone both ways. And we shouldn't have tinkered with it. Um. Do you th- do you think that? Because um, at the time, I remember that it was we had this situation where, in the conference, where it was very much Dean and Dwayne, Dean Sinclair and Dwayne Lee, and I think Nicky broke through, didn't he, around the, in that season? I think he was trying to accommodate all three of them, wasn't he, within that
1: system? Well, Dwayne was a very late back midfielder. He's one of those who always knew where to stand. Yeah. You know, you know, he never never exerted much energy, Dwayne. <laughs> But We knew where to stand. and... No, uh, yeah, I think I actually think the dynamic as he, because it, it it was going on throughout the season actually, and and I just thought the dynamic was a good one because it created a bit of competition for places. It gave him the opportunity to mix and match depending on you know who we were playing. Um, yeah, so on the field, if if I was if I had a stopwatch, I'd go back to then yeah. and say don't change anything <laughs> yeah. oh, please just leave it because I think on the field with us I'm better uh, off the field uh, oh. I don't know I mean I, I've asked that I've asked myself that one a few times I mean the move to the hive is I think the most uh, controversial issue amongst supporters um, and I think for me the problem was that it, it was the timing of it. You see, we had... The, the second biggest shareholder in Barnet FC was the Supporters Association. And they were chaired by Steve Percy for years and years and years. And we all know Steve, he's a bit nuts, but he's nuts about Barnet. And that's what we love about him, because he's nuts about Barnet. And as a, as a chair of the club, and him as chair of the Supporters Association... Let's face it, there was always going to be some friction. But we kind of learnt each other over time. And I I started to accept that, you know, he was the way he was because he loved the club. And I think he started to accept me because I was never, ever going to do anything to harm the club. And, you know, and then you had, I think we had Keith Doe was chair for a while, I think, uh, Pete, Pete Williams. Uh, and, and I think Ed, Eddie was the last chairman I remember. Yeah. Of, of the supporters' association. And there was always a great relationship. You know, I would turn up to their meetings, we would talk about stuff. And then all of a sudden, uh, this trust thing came along. And they seemed to have their eye on one thing and one thing only in my eyes. All they wanted was to get hold of those shares that the association had. The, you know, well, that's how it appeared to me. Um, because all of a sudden, we got this rival group and they completely split our club in two. And for me, that is so annoying because that should never, ever have happened. There aren't enough of us to keep dividing. You know, you end up with pockets of fans all in different camps.
2: Can I, can I just ask a question, Tony? Because I, I wasn't aware that the support association had shares in the club. Mm-hmm. Um, where are them shares now? I don't know. Um, they're, they're registered, so it
1: doesn't matter because they're still registered as having them. But where who's got the physical shares? I wouldn't know. You'd have to ask them. That's interesting. i know thats learning yeah. that for the first time. Oh yeah, I was talking to Keith Doe about it the other day because uh, uh, I, I saw him here a few. It was actually Keith who said, "You know, you know, Tony, you need to talk to supporters more because you don't talk to supporters enough." And I said, "Ah, oh, just gonna just get beaten up all the time." <laughs> but he was right. You know, I felt I felt you know. Um, and and that's kind of what made me say, look, I said to Adam, first chance I get, we'll do it. Yeah.
0: I guess on, on the sort of supporters thing then, because the move to the Hive has obviously split the, the fan base to a certain extent. And I think, I mean, I, I haven't gone through the specific data around attendances and stuff, but I think certainly some people's concept of the club, the identity of the club is very tightly wrapped up in Underhill. And I think there's probably a, a feeling on all sides that, it would be a shame to lose those supporters from the club, and and you know we want obviously we're a small club, and for us to succeed, I think one of the things you've always said is we need a fan base that's growing and growing. Part of that success, and part of it, is relationships. What do you have sort of any any thoughts about what could be done to bring those people back on board, or is from your end is it just a sense of frustration that you've kind of made the case a lot of times about the hive and people aren't getting it? What, what would you say to someone who is saying, you know what? At the moment, I'm not, I'm not feeling fully in tune with the club because of the Hive.
1: So I think my point was that I think we split then and then we split again when we moved. So I think, you know, you suddenly had the group who wanted to own the club, the group who wanted to be at Underhill and the group who were happy to move the club to the Hive. So it wasn't, to me, it was never two, it was actually three. And it created a real problem for me because when we moved here, it wasn't to stay here. I mean, our licence here was only three years. So the intention was not to stay here. I was hoping that our supporters would put pressure on the council to find the society in Barnet and and then we'd go back, you know, march back proud. There was one particular supporter, his name escapes me. God, what a fantastic, determined fellow. I mean, he walked backwards and forwards to all the games to try and get support and help for people to go back to Underhill. And I felt so bad because originally, you know, when he spoke to me, I said, look, I'm, I'm up for going back to Barnet. You know, I think I was even photographed with the T-shirt. I didn't have a problem with it. But, you know, when you've got 10 people or 20 people getting behind something, you know, you're never... You know, by then, the council had succeeded, you know, because that was all their intention was, to just get us out. Yeah. So, so you know... I had reached a point where I thought, well this is ridiculous, because now what we've got to do is somehow we've got to stay here, and I've got to show Harrow that we're worth keeping. And they're not going to be proud of us if we're marching up and down the streets saying we want to be back at Barnet, causing a problem. So I had to take what I know was an unpopular decision, but I had to nail my colours somewhere, because at, at the time I had no, we had no place at Underhill to go, here we only had the license for three years because at that time we had a lease yeah. and it restricted us, and I had to get that lease extended. But they weren't going to extend the lease if we weren't committing to stay in the borough. Mm. So I, I was in a I was in a real catch twenty two with it all, um, and I just thought, look, we're we're in Harrow, let's get on with it. You know, we've got a home, we've got a place, let's make it our home. And we can always look at what we're going to do with Barnet later on once we've sorted ourselves out. And actually, funny enough, it's kind of, it's a shame because if we had four or five or 6,000 people turning up now, we could actually collectively, I think, bring real pressure on Barnet to get something in Barnet. Because, you know, I'm no different to those other fans who think we should be in Barnet. I, I believe that too. We're only 500 yards over the border, I don't believe you know it wasn't like when we were offered Milton Keynes and we were talking about referendums and all that yeah. kind of crap, you know the fact is this was as close as I could get to Barnet
0: without being in Barnet. Uh, and where, where would you say we are sort of nowadays then on that? Is because obviously what we
1: I've reached out a couple of times to yeah. Barnet Council when the leader changed because Cornelius Cornelius stood down. Yeah. He was the one. I mean you got to remember what they did to us. I mean first. Uh, he lives in Totteridge. So leader, new leader of the council lives in Totteridge. First thing he does, takes Copter away by giving it to Nigel Ray, who lives next door, pretty much, in Totteridge and the Saracens. So so they stopped me from going there. Then they went and, and you know, uh, uh, the land behind Underhill, which we could have expanded into quite easily, the King George V playing Fields, I think they were called. They then went and, Gave that to their friends at Wingate and Finchley, and stopped me going southwards anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: And then the final straw, which is the one that made me move, is they served papers on us that we couldn't use Priory Grove, which meant that supporters wouldn't be even able to get to East Terrace. So, so they came up with this three-pronged plan, if you like, to to force me out. Yeah. And I knew what they were doing. And and privately, I had counsellors, because there were some. You know, the, the Tory-Labour thing, the politics, became ridiculous. Again, the same people who formed the Trust were the same people who were politically involved. They, they joined the KBA as well. and course, you know, when they turned it into politics, it became a political thing. I don't support either party, Labour or Tory, or anyone. I take people as I find them. But everything was being politicised. Um, and, and for me, I think... Uh, you know, when you get to the point where you're in a, um, they call a ward, when you're in a ward where the votes in that ward decide who's going to run the council, which is what happened at Underhill, yeah. you're in trouble, because you will be a political pawn, and so whichever lot support you, the other lot will be against you, and vice versa. It became ridiculous. The whole situation was ridiculous. So it was made impossible for us to carry on where we were. And I actually hoped that by coming away from it, that the council would change and they would realise how important Barnet was. And if there was a lot of us together determined enough, they would find us a new home, preferably somewhere that's not politically sensitive. Uh, Because what happens is if you've got a Tory council, they want to put you in a labour area, If you've got a Labour council, they want to put you in a... It's terrible. Yeah. You know, uh, so I think for me, regardless of what's happened and where we are today, I will never give up hope that that may happen. I reached out twice. I've sent messages reaching out to say to Barnett, look, we're still here, you know. You know, everything I told you, because when I used to tell them about what I was going to build, they used to think, yeah, 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 what idiot's going to spend all that money on a football field, right? But now we've done it, Uh, I know they look at it and think, oh, actually, everything he said is true. If you look at my Working Together document, I did two documents. They all talked about what I was going to build. You know, I was going to build a stadium, I was going to build a training ground. All the things I said I'd do, I've done. The trouble is I've done them here. Now, I'll do them again in Barnet. You know, for me, uh, it's not a problem, no issue. I just, I just don't know where that's going to be in Barnet. The only people who can deal with that is the council. Yeah. They've got to have the will to say, yeah, we want them here. Because without a council, you just can't, you just can't do it. You, can't, you won't get the permissions. They'll block you all the way. And, they're, you know, look, they're politicians. Uh-huh. They're very
2: clever at, at stopping you from doing stuff and making sure you get the blame for it as well. Are there, any, um, are there any sort of locations that you, you've been keeping an eye on over the years? I mean, th- this is the other awkward thing.
1: So when you, because, you know, we've had three legal cases with Barnett and won them all. Uh, you know, we got accused of underhand dealings to get Underhill and they lost that case. We had the planning inquiries, you know, we've had two of those. And when you have a, a planning inquiry for Greenbelt, one of the most important tests is called a sequential test. In order for you to get planning for something, you have to prove there's no other available places that you can do it. And we had to do that twice. We had to trawl through every possible site and have the, and, and list the pluses and the minuses about yeah. getting, getting hold of the site. So, you know, if I give you an example, there's one at Sterling Corner, uh, old Metropolitan Police Ground. Now I remember that one, I mean, you know, I I remember thinking that's actually a really good location, because it's right next to the A1, but it was in private ownership, so you've got to convince them to sell it. But more importantly, there's, at that time we had a Labour government, and they had this big thing about public transport, must be accessible by public transport, no trains, I think there was one bus went there, so you couldn't get past that test. Now, would you get past it today? I don't know. So you could have sites that you might think are quite good, but without the council's support, they will find a way to say no, no, no. It's got to be something that they want you to have because it's funny that when they do, suddenly all these problems can be overcome. Uh, so, so I think it's not what I would want, it's what they would want, you know, if Barnet Council truly wanted Barnet FC in, in in Barnet, they would have sorted it by now.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's it's a really interesting point, and I think one of the things that I think supporters is it's difficult is it's not like a static thing. So I think for some fans, the longer we are at the Hive, the the more that sort of identity they feel dissipate dissipates to some extent. Um, and and I guess the the question is how do we sort of balance trying to form a new identity at the high because we have had some great memories here we know we've got a shirt up on the wall there from the championship winning size of 2014-2015 the, the Brentford game was I, mean, I think one of the highlights that I've had as a Barnet fan in 25 years so I guess it's that constant tension between trying to form a, an identity here and a local identity here as well as uh, trying to kind of heart back oh. to getting back to Barnet.
1: so so I suppose you're, it's whether your glass is half empty or half full because for me I saw here as an opportunity. I saw it as an opportunity to get a whole load of more new Barnet fans, because what we need is a bigger fan base. What yeah. you want to do is keep the ones you got and add to them. And and if there's one area we have not been successful in for sure, it's in trying to cultivate everyone around here. You have you know you, you have three populations if you like around us here. Uh, uh, you you have a an Indian population obviously. A strong Asian population, uh, you've got a strong Romanian population around burnt oak, etc. Of course, you've got a strong Jewish population on that site towards edgeware. And if you can cultivate them and get them all coming to Barnet here, then you've got another new batch of supporters that if we did end up finding a place back in Barnet or wherever, I don't know what the future, but you'll have more supporters because it's got to be about having more supporters. So when people talk to me about new experiences, I think about more experiences. Yeah. I just want us to have more and more and more and for it to be more and more. I just, I don't know, I don't know why, um, but somehow we have not been successful in retaining what we have and I'm putting football performances on one side because let's face it, when the team plays rubbish, no one wants to come. <laughs> uh, and I know that, right? Yeah. Okay, but... But even when the team plays well, sometimes not as many people come as should come.
0: Yeah,
1: that, that's the bit that worries me more. Yeah. So, so we've got to be more successful. And that's kind of where COVID, COVID has kind of given me an interesting time to reflect on a lot of things. And, and we've made a huge amount of changes uh, to our whole community department. We're appointing some new heads in new areas. Uh, and, and building these new affinity programs up, where hopefully we'll start to see some change. We're going to reach out into this local community a hell of a lot more and see if we can, you know, try and capture a lot more supporters yeah. uh, and, and get them involved with Barnet FC. And that'd be great if we can do that.
0: I guess um, you talked there about sort of parking the, the football side of things. I think that that's. Definitely a case you know. There are Barnet fans that will come week in, week out, no matter what's happening on the pitch. Obviously, I think what what's happened on the pitch in the last sort of few seasons or so has been has been tricky and challenging. Just switching our attention then to current matters and this season, and then kind of looking back from there. I mean, what what in your view has has sort of gone wrong this season? Um,
1: uh, it wasn't this season. It wasn't, it, this, season, it, it was wasn't it. this season, no. So so yeah. look, let, let's. First of all, every time I explain what's happened, everyone goes, Oh, he's making excuses. I'm not. I'm just telling you what happened. Right? I take responsibility for everything. So so this the the problem was this. It's very simply this. It's me. All right. It's me. And it's me because of this. When we got relegated, I, I can't tell you that season broke my heart. I never, ever wanted to end up back in the bloody National League (laughs) again. I should say that. I'm a director of the National League. But, God, I I just, you know, having got out, I said never again. And all of a sudden, I'd put a squad. I'd invested a lot of money. I'd got this place starting to, to work and generate income for the team. We invested in players that were, you know, really good players for the division we were in. You know, and you know, I remember, you know, at that time we had a really strong squad and and we should have gone up. And we had infighting started originally between Henry Newman and Rossi Eames and you know, and that caused a bit of a problem. And we got over that and we were starting the season looking positive. Um so this I felt, is just to be clear, this
0: is under Rossi in two thousand and eighteen it would be. two thousand
1: seventeen, yeah, this the season we got relegated yeah, yeah, yeah. and then and then I remember, you know, wanted another striker. I went and paid good money for Tarpe And we paid um, uh, Swindon away. That yeah. was it. And won 4-0. Four 4-1, four four one one, was it? Four one yeah. Yeah, yeah had a good game. Shaquille, yeah. And I, and I think we went up to fourth or something at that time. And I remember leaving that ground thinking, thinking, finally, I'm getting there. I've cracked it. I'm going to get us back into League One. Because that's always been my thing and And the wheels came off, I think the following ga- game we had two cruchettes and yeah. yeah and and I think we had four cruise in a season, 13 1st team players injured. You know, I have never seen anything like it. In the meantime, Rossi needed help, he needed some experience. Uh, I knew of Mark McGee and Scotland came and did some training here uh, and i i I got hold of Mark, he just left Scotland, and I said, "Look." I've got a young, inexperienced guy, but he's really good because I really like Rossi and I really felt as a coach he was he was going to have a future. Um, can you come and help? And literally, Mark's come in the door just as Rossi can't take anymore and has decided to walk out. I mean, I don't, I don't think they sat in the room together. I don't know. They might have done. But literally, I had to phone up Mark because I'd planned all this, you know, yeah, yeah. building it all. So, so I phoned up Mark and said, Mark, you know I asked you to come in as director of football. He said, yeah. I said, I've got a problem. He said, what? I said, the manager's just walked out. Uh, and he said, right. I said, uh, I need some help. He said, do you need me to step in? I said, I, that would really help right now while we sort this out. So now Mark's come in uh, just to help out. And he's looking for the manager whilst running the team. And we've we've offered the job actually to two or three people who didn't want to risk taking it. Um, it's a bit of an awkward one because when you go for a manager who has success higher up, they obviously will see Barnet as a step down. Yeah. Not because of our facilities, but because we haven't got a big base to move forward from. And and, and managers do look a lot at that. You know. Yeah. You know, the bigger the crap You know, if you if you've got a a big crowd, like a hull, when they're in our division. You know, if they do well, they're going to have twenty, thirty thousand. Yeah. Whereas, you're not sure how many you're going to get when Barnet do well. Yeah. Uh, and bear in mind, you know, if you take the season we got promoted, I think the very, uh, the very next game, first league game, we got promoted with Bristol Rovers. I think they had eleven Summit thousand, and we had I think seventeen hundred. So, so you kind of look at that and think, oh you know which team would you want to manage if you're ambitious so so there's two or three for career reasons who felt look I'm not sure you know you're gonna you might get that one step up but not sure you'll
2: be able to sustain game further than that can you confirm or not confirm that one of them was Kenny jacket uh, that's the one that always gets brought up
1: <laughs> we did consider Kenny I can't I, I genuinely can't remember if it was offered yeah. to him I mean, Mark was doing a lot of the talking with the managers as well. So I, I don't, I don't want
2: to... I'm not trying to be evasive. I yeah, actually yeah. don't remember. No, no, I just thought I ask because uh, everybody always goes, his, get a Kenny Jacket. They always bring up Kenny Jacket's name.
1: He, he He's certainly... Listen, he's he's, he's a good manager. Yeah. You know, he's certainly one we'd consider um, and might... May may be one of the ones. Yeah. Uh, I can remember a couple of them, uh, but I'm not going to name That's them. Fine. And he may be one also. So anyway, we couldn't we couldn't get... The person went for the job. By this time, the team had lost a few games. Yeah. Uh, we had a few injuries, lost a few games, and and we started to talk about we need a high impact manager now because we're running out of time.
2: Uh
1: and and that's when Graham Wesley sort of, oh god, what it's a mistake. What a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Graham Wesley. Just, just, um, was that, was that- that's how well what happened was I, I, I was having a conversation with Mark and I said. There is one chap who's been texting me and driving me nuts. Who's definitely our impact manager, but our supporters will never have him. He goes,
2: and he goes, "Who's that?" <laughs> no. Was he sending you texts in the middle of the night? Because that's, that's, that's his Graham, memo. Graham, <laughs> yeah, he, he does. He's
1: listen. I tell I, you, he's a very, cl- he's a very clever man, a very articulate man, yeah. and a very persistent man. And I can see why he's had success. You know, I, I wouldn't knock Graham. I know, I know, our fans don't like him, but he, he he's very good at psychology. He'll wind people up. And, and yeah, I can I know a few people who he's wound up to probably they want to punch him <laughs> on the nose. <laughs> but, but anyway, he... <laughs> so he was very persistent and he is high impact. So I mentioned it to Mark. Mark said, well, I don't know Graham. I need to talk to him. I said, well, I'm not sure. But we arranged it anyway. So he, he met with... Uh, Mark and Graham and I met at a hotel in town. Um... And afterwards, Mark said, he's the right man. And I said, no, I'm not sure I'm going to do it. And he said, no, you've got to do it. You appointed me director of football, and it's my decision, Tony. You know, it's for me to make. Uh, Otherwise, why did you give me the job? And I thought, you know, it's fair enough. Um, But I still wasn't sure. And I remember I spoke to Barry. Barry, what's Graham like? No, No problem, Tony. really good manager. Uh, and I was like, oh, and I agreed, it was, it was, you know, you kind of bounced it in your head, and you think, I agreed, and, and, Actually, I think it was Keith Doe again, because <laughs> he has my number. Somehow, Keith has got my number, and he always finds me. I think I got I got an email. I think I got a death threat from him. Actually, <laughs> within moments of announcing it, uh, I was like, "Oh God, what have yeah. I done? Uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't have said yes." But no, it was done. Yeah. Um, and in fairness, he did he he did he worked hard. He did you know, but um, not it just wasn't going as well as it needed to go. Uh, and in the end, I just thought I can't do this anymore. You know, we're we're now in such a bad position. This good team could get relegated. I've got to try and save us. So, of course, whenever, whenever, whenever we get
2: that, pos- Mark, <laughs> is yeah. we're getting Martin. Yeah. Is this is this your office, by the way, Tony? This is Martin's. Yeah. Is there like a red button, like a Martin <laughs> and a, a red button?
1: There's a there's a red phone somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so yes, yeah, so I had to send for the Martin. Yeah, um, and and you know, God bless him. The results he got in those last few games proved what I was saying all along, which was that team should have got promoted, not relegated. You know, in fairness, he started to get some players back as well, back yeah. from injury, and I think we finished the season with top form, promotion yeah. form. And it just, I just, it just broke my heart. I just couldn't. And, and I think that's why we're in a mess today because from that day I feel like I disengaged I was like oh, I just can't take anymore I, was, I, went, I went to Cyprus uh, I got a phone call from uh, John Steele I happened to be in Cyprus I was thinking to myself I need to get someone who's experienced to just get on and sort it because I can't do this and then lo and behold that the blue John rings me up, what are you doing chairman yeah. here you're in Cyprus as well uh, and I thought, oh, is that a sign? Um, and, and yeah, so I agreed to, uh, in the end, I appointed John cause I thought, you know what, he's got experience. I know him. He's won it more times than anyone, you know, give him the keys to the car and let him, let him take the drive. Cause, cause I just, you know, mentally I'd disengaged and, and that was a mistake because, um, John did two things for me that really shouldn't have happened. Uh, One was he dismantled the team, which I don't believe he should have done. And I said that to him, that, you know, this team was on top form, we should keep them together. I think he made 13 signings or something like that. Huge number of signings. Um, Also, he signed some players from Dagenham Redbridge, which was very difficult for me because... I didn't feel the, the calibre of player we required. But then when I was talking to Dagenham, they were in a mess. They need, It's funny, we're playing them today, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you can ask Tomo, but he'll deny it. Uh, They're yeah. Chief Exec. but I remember speaking to him and him saying, oh, we've got real problems here, we need the money. And in the end, I kind of paid money for players that I don't think were worth any money yeah. just to try and help Dagenham. Um, uh, and i think just to help john help dagenham cuz i think that's why you know these john was really singing their praises and I was like, mm, <laughs> i'm not so sure <laughs> i'm not sure this is not a charity case i think it was a charity case um and you know we were just mediocre um uh, he brought his team over from dagenham that was darren and and junior and So, you know, so we kind of had, we sort of became a Barnet and Redbridge, I think, uh, for for a while. Um, And we just weren't good enough. And so all the parachute money got spent, wasted, wasted. And that was the real problem for me. The recruitment was so bad and and has been. Um, And I've been so disengaged. I've had managers just saying, I need X, Y and Z, and I've just been paying for it. I mean, no one could doubt the number of players we'd signed. Um, and all the way up to Tim Flowers, actually, I was still doing it. And it was only actually after Tim Flowers that I finally sort of slapped myself round the face and said, Tony, wake up. Any other business you run, you get involved and, and take a... You know, I, you know, I don't make the decisions. I, I authorise decisions, but I let my managers manage... I'd like to think, you know, anyone you speak to work for us will say, you know, I might question everything they do, but I let them manage. But they have to justify, they have to explain, they have to make the right decisions. And I've gone a bit back to that now. So, you know, the if you take this last appointment, uh, we had we had about 100 odd applications. I personally interviewed about 30 of them, uh, took a great interest in them, never found it. Anyone amongst them who 100 percent convinced me they were the right person, Simon, I felt would be a fantastic coach, which is why I hired him. Gary I would already hired Gary Anderson, who'd worked with me before because he'd worked with the Olympics. He recommended a physio who had, you know Bachelor of Science, a top lad, uh, Ollie. So you know so we've appointed a head of performance in Gary. We've appointed the new physio, Ollie, Oliver. Um, I've got a chap who worked for me on the medical side, Ricky Bartlett, who's always getting involved with the team. You can't keep him off it. And he's actually my best logistics man as well uh, In within our group. Yeah. I shouldn't say that. He'll hear that. His head will swell. He'll <laughs>
2: want to pay rise. Right? <laughs> yeah,
1: he, he, Ricky, Ricky, yeah. But but for logistics, etc. he's excellent. So uh, he's been he's been he he had a a little uh, personal issue, so he's been uh, volunteering and helping. But he, from July the first, he, he he will work full time with the team, running all the logistics. Uh, and getting the logistics right is really important. Uh, some of the stuff that used to happen amongst the team in the last two three years makes me cry. You know some of the some of the way the logistics were handled.
0: Well, what do you mean like that sort of like?
1: Uh, oh, uh, I, I really do. You, say, right. <laughs> you know look look i have this thing about look uh if we're going to play away for instance to a team that's let's say greater than three hours travel distance or or an overnight stay let's use an overnight stay as, as, as an example to me you've got to stay in the right kind of hotel the right distance away from the club you're playing now some managers want to be right on top of where they're playing, but I've had experience with fire alarms going off, and yeah, you know, I've been doing this a long time, right So you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a club to give you an example. I just use Darlington because yeah. I don't know. So if you're playing Darlington, don't go and stay in Darlington because there'll be all Darlington fans in the hotel. You, you've got to think about what you're eating, you've got to think about fire alarms going off, you've got to think about all this stuff. And we've been like amateur night the last two, three years. Some of the things we've done have made no sense to me whatsoever. So I want us to go back to doing things professionally and properly. And I know Ricky will make sure it's done professionally and properly. I want people dressed properly. I want people, you know, you know, when we go on the coach, carry the right foods. We don't want people eating burgers. Yeah. We should have on the coach the correct food. You know, you know we have... It just... Some of the things that happen, when I hear about it, I think, oh God, what are we doing? It's so annoying. And it you, you sort of get into it and you think someone somewhere has done something because it's convenient or easy, not because it's the right thing. A winning team always does the right thing. Paul's teams win because Paul would pay attention to detail. That's why his teams win. And Martin's the same. You know, let me tell you something about Martin. Martin is, as, you know, mad dog, everyone calls him, and he might be, but listen, he's not mad. He's crazy, but not mad. He knows what he's doing, and he pays huge attention to detail. Mm-hmm. That's why he's a winner. That's what makes winners, paying attention to detail. You can't be sloppy. You know, some of the stuff we do, is it makes me cry so I want us to go back to being that. So I'm paying attention to every position, logistics. I'm going to hire a new head of recruitment. We need to recruit the best players. What's the point? I mean, I, I, I made a flip statement about you know you could pull names out of a hat, but literally it was like that.
0: that that's just 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 on that because I think there's a couple of things I want to put up there. Sorry, man, to. I yeah, but, the, us, yeah I'll, I'll like, go first is, and then I'll. This hand is,
2: it, is <laughs> this is where a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in Beast Pod. This is it, yeah, and this is the bit that we feel okay.
0: we've let yeah. ourselves down. In. So, so, I guess the let let's just do the recruitment first of all, because I think going back to the 2018 season, where that was the sort of you know under Rossi, sorry, so that what, what we started talking about in terms of where the, yeah. the route. But I think even before that, you could probably go back quite a few years where we seem, from our, my end at least, to get into a pattern of under recruiting in terms of quality at the start of a season, and then. As I'm sure you know paying hand of a fist for sub-level talent later on. I mean, the, the squad size is ballooned. So there does seem to be sort of a pattern of. Let me explain to you that. what happens
1: because. Um, look, at the end of the day, uh, if you're a player, let's say you're a striker of League One standard, stroke yeah. League Two, right? And you're, you now the time you, your agent's gonna hope you get a good deal is the summer, when everyone's signing, right? And what you'll get is, I don't know, i just make up the clubs, but Swindon, MK Dons, whatever, you know, clubs around our level who are bigger. You're going to be hoping to get a deal with them because they've got, you know, 10,000 crowds and they're going to pay probably double what we pay, particularly when we have squad budgeting. So the league won't let you pay more if you wanted to. Uh, Squad budgeting is a big issue that I keep trying to explain to supporters but you're only allowed to spend a percentage of your turnover. So, so if your turnover is a million pounds and, you, and you're only allowed 10 players, you're only going to be able to spend 100 grand each on a maximum. Yeah. Whereas if your budget is 5 million, it's half a million maximum. So, so you know, agents know all this. They have all the figures. They know the clubs have got the money. And importantly, they all know what all the players get. So they know the available budgets. So what happens is they hang out and hang out and hang out to get one of those. And we're knocking on the door going, look, don't forget us. We want you, we want you, we want you. Please sign, please sign. But normally, they'll sign when they run out of options. Uh, I
0: guess- and
1: that's why you get these late signings and late, you know, because, because that's the way it works.
0: That brings us to an end of part one of our interview with Mr Tony Kiantis. As ever, we'd love to know what you think. If you have any questions, thoughts or comments, just let us know on Twitter at BeastPod. And similarly, if you like what you heard, we'd love it if you could drop us a good review or alternatively subscribe to our podcast. Thanks a lot and stay tuned for part two coming very, very soon.